a lot of the work that happens in the off season uh, between storm and wildfire season is really what allows us to be so successful in restoring power when storms and wildfires do occur. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Hurricane season officially begins on June 1st, and we know there already are severe and extreme drought conditions throughout the West that are raising the risk of wildfires. Electric companies undergo power restoration and business continuity planning year-round to prepare for emergencies, including hurricanes and wildfires, but now is the time for all of us to prepare for natural disasters and other emergencies that could cause power outages this summer. In the first part of today's episode, we will hear from Storm Geo meteorologist Justin Petrusis about Storm Geo's predictions for this year's hurricane and wildfire season. Then, we'll learn how customers should prepare for these natural disasters from EEI Senior Vice President of Security and Preparedness, Scott Aronson, who also serves as part of the Secretariat for the CEO-led Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, which serves as the principal liaison between the federal government and electric power companies to prepare for and respond to threats to critical infrastructure and major incidents. So Justin, starting off with you, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, I'm happy to be here. So hurricane season starts in June. So can you start us off by giving us maybe what your hurricane outlook or predictions are for this year? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I don't know if you you have a, a guess on how many storms and severity and I mean, it's really been an intense past couple storm seasons, so are, are we in for another one? Yes, unfortunately, it does look like uh, another very busy Atlantic hurricane season is on tap uh, for the upcoming season. All of our longer range uh, model guidance and parameters and also our analog seasons are favoring another very active season from, from the Atlantic Basin, including the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Our latest projection, we've increased our numbers a little bit from our update a couple months ago. We were forecasting 19 uh, tropical storms uh, earlier on in the spring. Now we're calling for 20 to 22 named storms, of which 9 or 10 will likely become hurricanes, which is 75 mile per hour sustained winds or higher, and four or five of those being major hurricanes, which is 111 miles per hour sustained winds or higher. Our latest projections indicate that the northeastern Gulf of Mexico, uh, basically east of New Orleans, eastward across Florida and to the Carolinas, those areas look like they're going to have the highest risk and the greatest threat of seeing a major hurricanes based on our latest projections. And due to the increasingly more favorable look at the season, all areas across the Gulf Coast, Atlantic Seaboard and the Caribbean looks like they're going to be seeing a higher than normal risk uh, compared to average this season. And we've come off a couple of really intense hurricane seasons. So could you maybe remind us of some of the more impactful storms that we've seen over the past couple of years and really how kind of unusually they intensified as they came on shore? Yes, and uh, especially Louisiana got hit really hard the past few hurricane seasons by some fairly intense storms. Last year in 2021, uh, there was a Hurricane Ida that caused a lot of damage uh, to um, a large part of Louisiana. And just the year before in 2020, there was a uh, hurricane Laura, which was uh, one of the strongest hurricanes to make landfall. And that caused a lot of significant damage uh, across Louisiana. So there's definitely been uh, several strong uh, landfalling hurricanes that have impacted 
uh, portions of the United States and centered on Louisiana the past couple of years. So seeing those trends likely to continue, it sounds like we have a, a busy summer ahead of us potentially with preparing for impact. Yes, unfortunately, that's what it's looking like right now. And we're fairly confident that it's going to be another active season. All of the parameters and signals are trending that way right now. Now, I've seen some data as well, and, and you might watch it more closely, of just how dry it's really been out west. I know as we speak here today, there, there's active fires in a number of states already. So what does the current data maybe suggest on I really just current wildfire conditions and, and what we might see there for the summer? Yes, it looks like, uh, unfortunately, it's going to be a long, hot and dry summer across much of the western U.S., which, of course, is not good news for the ongoing significant wildfires and drought that we're seeing across that part of the country. All of our current long-range signals point towards continued drier than normal and, in some cases, expanding drought intensity over a large part of the Rockies, especially the southern half of the Rockies. And that's also probably going to be extending into the Great Plains over the summer. We think wildfires are going to be especially more active across the southern Rockies, including much of California, by the late spring and continuing uh, into the summer, maybe even into the fall as well. And not only will the number of fires be higher than normal, but the risk of larger scale fires is also going to be elevated during the summer and fall months. The enhanced fire risk is forecast to expand northward into the northern Rockies and even into southwestern Canada during the middle of the summer. And uh, it's important to note that the long-term drought across the Rockies is being caused by colder than normal water off the West Coast. Uh, that's associated with La Nina, which is colder than normal water along the equatorial eastern Pacific Ocean. And it doesn't look like the La Nina event is going to be ending anytime soon. So probably we're going to be seeing more of what we're seeing right now, more record dry and uh, hot temperatures over much of the western U.S. over the upcoming months. And did some of those western states have a little less snowpack than normal for this winter season? Yes, they did. And that's continued to trend from the past few winter seasons. It's been consistently below normal rainfall and snowfall across a large part of the West um, over the past few years. So I don't know if you'd be willing to maybe talk a little bit about the tools of the trade. You, you've talked about your forecasting and monitoring, but what sort of data inputs do you all use or what sort of maybe monitoring technologies do you all utilize as you, as you work to kind of monitor, anticipate some of these hurricanes and wildfires? Yes, so we detect a brewing storm and brewing wildfires by monitoring high-resolution satellite imagery and uh, for hurricanes, especially wind-derived satellite data. Both are highly accurate and very reliable for identifying uh, th those fires that develop in uh, any areas of tropical activity that's about to intensify. Also, some of our short and long-range computer models do a very good job in identifying potential areas that could develop. And our tools have greatly uh, become more useful over the past few years just uh, due to good research that's going on and more higher resolution data. Um, some of our forecasters also use longer range technical signals that can give us clues in potential tropical development on a regional and global scale. Some of these include tracking the MJO, that's the Madden-Julian oscillation, and that's a trackable area of enhanced storminess across the tropics. There's also Kelvin waves that create areas of localized lift and favorability as well as those dry air intrusions, those uh, sal outbreaks, that's the African Sahara dust. We sometimes hear about those over the summertime seasons, which could uh, help prevent tropical development. Those are uh, most prevalent in the summertime months. Our tropical team is also constantly monitoring these features, which give our clients valuable insights into longer range risk across the tropical oceanic basins. 
And this type of monitoring has improved over the years, mainly due to more accurate computer model data, as well as higher resolution satellite data. So it's safe to say there's, there's a lot of inputs that go into your analyses. That is correct. Now, do electric companies work directly with meteorologists as part of their storm preparedness operations or even during storms? Yes, we do work with electric companies and storm preparedness. Our Stormwatch Threat ID um, is a product that we give uh, to our clients, and it gives an early warning as much as five to seven days in advance of an impending storm system that could cause outages on either a small or large scale. And as the event approaches, our meteorologists are available for PowerPoint presentations, video presentations, conference calls, impromptu calls. And that gives uh, the leaders the opportunity to ask questions about the risk related to their service territory. And our tropical team also has the availability of what we call timeline tools. And that helps electrical companies identify their trigger levels, mainly wind thresholds, as the tropical system approaches several days in advance. Each threshold that is reached for that electrical company triggers a higher plan of action based on their vulnerabilities. Our tropical team and our client services team then works with senior leadership for those electric companies and identify which thresholds are the most critical for them. So in addition to monitoring weather and kind of real and near time, are you also, it sounds like you're also kind of looking at some of those broader trends to help electric companies just get a sense of what intensity is like, how that might change even in the future. Because again, as they're doing their grid planning, and we, we talk a lot often about AHR investments, so that's adaptation, hardening, and resilience. It sounds as though maybe some of the work your team all is doing is helping to inform some of that planning. Yes, that's correct. And depending on the severity of the storm, sometimes we hold uh, multiple conference calls with them a day, um, just because sometimes these systems, and we've seen this over the past few seasons, uh, these systems can rapidly intensify. Uh, much more than models are indicating. So that's uh, definitely becoming a more concerning trend as we uh, head into the future. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'll, I'll note that, I mean, we use uh, your services to help the EI storm team get a sense of the storms that are coming as well as a lot of real-time information during major incidents. And it sounds like I, I uh, am sad to say we may be speaking often this summer, but uh, again, uh, this is a critical piece of our, our planning and response activities. And just, it, it is interesting to learn how a lot of companies really do work close with meteorologists to get an understanding of, of the threat, but also kind of inform the investments that they're making to increase resilience against some of these increasingly strong storms. Yes, you're welcome. And uh, thanks for having me. Well, now that we know what the electric power industry may be up against this year, let's talk to Scott Aronson about how electric companies prepare for hurricanes and other extreme weather events and what customers should be doing to prepare. Scott is EEI's Senior Vice President for Security and Preparedness. So Scott, we just heard from Storm Geo, who laid out how hurricane and wildfires are forecasted to increase not just in frequency, but also intensity as we have seen in the past previous few years. Um, has this changed the way that electric companies are preparing for these types of events? So I'll answer that a couple of different ways. I think in the first, the first way to answer it is electric companies are preparing year after year for the last several decades to be better at responding to all manner of threats, uh, whether that's acts of, of God or, or, or acts of man. Uh, and that's going to include things like uh, cyber and physical threats, but also uh, storms, wildfires, earthquakes, pandemics, you name it. 
Uh, that said, uh, I think in recent years, we absolutely have seen an uptick, not just in the frequency, but the severity, and, and not even just the severity, but how quickly some storms are going from, oh, it's a category one, or it's a tropical depression, to major hurricanes in a very short amount of time. That obviously changes what electric companies can do to prepare for and to pre-position crews. If at first it's a storm that looks like it's going to be, uh, you know, just some some light winds and and uh, a little bit of uh, rain to you know hundred plus mile an hour winds uh, and devastation to infrastructure, uh, it requires that companies have a better ability to uh, act quickly. Uh, and react to, uh, to to constantly changing conditions. So uh, again, to kind of uh, summarize, electric companies are planning year round for many years to prepare for and respond to all manner of threats. But uh, we are definitely seeing um, a new kind of threat uh, to the energy grid that is requiring uh, companies to be really nimble uh, when incidents do happen. And I think I just read that Hurricane Ida, the name Ida has been officially retired. So I, I don't know if you recall just the absolute impact that it had to Louisiana and other places that made its way north. I, I think I remember the numbers just being dramatic. They were, uh, and I'm, I'm glad they retired it. We don't need any more uh, Hurricane Ida's, uh, but uh, it was uh, among the, if not the most devastating uh, hurricanes from an infrastructure impact perspective. And that's really saying something. It happened uh, 16 years to the day uh, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina was devastating and deadly and terrible for another for a whole variety of its own reasons, uh, and, and that's a name that has been uh, retired as well. Uh, but what you had with uh, Hurricane Ida was uh, uh, an impact to infrastructure. You had thirty thousand poles were destroyed, and that's an important metric only because if thirty thousand poles are down, that means that there are thousands of miles of wire down. That means that there are all the cross arms and hardware and transformers uh, that go on that infrastructure uh, were impacted as well. So uh, you know, a lot of circuit miles, uh, a lot of conductor on the ground, a lot of poles destroyed because of Ida. Uh, whereas again, Katrina was was horrific, but it was really focused on the levees failing. It was focused on the water inundation in the city of New Orleans, uh, whereas uh, uh, Ida was uh, a lot more widespread and a lot more impactful to electric power sector infrastructure. So I, I guess as you kind of just explained, every storm's a little bit different. So. And there's always going to be lessons learned. I know that with uh, Harvey a few years ago that hit Houston, I mean, there was unprecedented amounts of rain and flooding. That was a complication we hadn't seen in a little bit. So as companies are presented with these new challenges, are they making a point to learn from kind of the unique aspects of each storm just so they can make the planning better for the next time around? Yeah, Brian, you, you said it really well. Uh, every storm is a little bit different. That said, there's an opportunity to learn from every single one of these. And so uh, things like the sharing of equipment more effectively and efficiently between and among companies uh, is something that had to be done on the fly uh, after Hurricane Ida and something that the uh, electric companies in the United States are even better at doing as a result. That material mutual assistance, that sharing of material and equipment between companies is something that has existed for many years in these kind of bilateral agreements where companies work together to help each other in times of need. But because of the broad scope, as you as we heard from Storm Geo, as, as you said uh, earlier, um, 
there are more storms, they are more uh, impactful, they are happening with more frequency, they're happening with uh, more severity. Uh, and given that parts of the country may be impact simultaneously, given that we have wildfires on one coast and we've got uh, storms happening on other coasts, uh, we have to be able to share all the way across, not just the United States, but North America, uh, given uh, the kinds of threats that we're seeing and, and the kinds of uh, uh, storms and fires that uh, are, are impacting infrastructure. And in addition to the kind of support and coordination that EEI offers our, our member companies during storms and leading into storms, I, year round, really, you and your team are, are doing quite a bit to help convene and facilitate a lot of these conversations so that companies have a chance to also learn from each other. And I think you have the distinction of, of hosting our longest named meeting that you all just wrapped up. So how did that go? And what were some of the topics and uh, all right, TDM, NMA, transmission, distribution, metering, and mutual assistance, right? You, you got it. That is that is our longest name meeting, but it, it is everything that it says, right? So transmission, distribution, metering, and mutual assistance, all of those operational components uh, that make uh, for uh, a uh, for the energy grid to be operational through all manner of threats. And so uh, that meeting uh, had a lot of focus on a lot of things that we just talked about, whether it was the sharing of material and equipment, whether it was the challenges to the supply chain coming out of a pandemic, uh, whether it was uh, uh, all of the things that we need to do to be more resilient in the face of, again, ever increasing uh, uh, frequency, duration, severity, intensity of storms. Um, we as critical infrastructure providers, that's not just a fun label that we like to put on things. We are critical to national security. We are critical to the life, health, and safety of the communities that we're privileged to serve. And in order to uh, keep the lights on and the gas flowing in all against all hazards, we have to be really creative in uh, in how we respond, and we have to be we have to prepare ahead of time. This isn't something we can just do oh, the storm hit, now we've got to figure it all out. A lot of the work that happens in the off season uh, between storm and wildfire season is really what allows us to be so successful in restoring power when storms and wildfires do occur. And some of that is things just as not, I'd say simple as the person doesn't have to do this, but vegetation management, which is critically important. I think we've seen some pretty severe storms hit New England in recent years. And really it's just the trees that come down and some of the challenges with getting permission to cut the trees. But I think squirrels, obviously we all know that squirrels and other little rodents like to chew on things and those can cause outages, but branches are, are, are also one of the main culprits. You know, it's one of the, what we'll say, the least sexy parts of the electric power sector. It's, you know, talk about vegetation management. What does that even mean? It really is that tree trimming that has to happen in the off season uh, because uh, when, fires occur uh, and there is it, you know it, and there is all of this uh, fuel the, the, these trees uh, it, if, if we have not done a good job of clearing those rights of way uh, we can really see uh, uh, your know, fires um, uh, expand in 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 where they're occurring same thing with uh, with uh, hurricanes and and other you know, just straight line wind uh, uh, or ice storms ice storms thunderstorms 
anything that is going to bring trees down, it's, it's really frustrating, I think. And I understand, look, we all, I, I live in a heavily treed area. We all love our old growth trees. This isn't about cutting down this oak tree from you know, 150 years ago, but it is about making sure that where there is electric infrastructure above ground, that we are making sure that uh, against severe winds, we are not gonna have tree contact with those, uh, with those power lines. That will help to mitigate the number of outages we have even during really severe weather. Um, we're not gonna prevent all outages. Then the second part of the equation is making sure that when those uh, outages do occur, when those tree contacts do occur, when branches falling into a line or trees knocking down a power, uh, a power line uh, occur, that we're able to restore as quickly as possible. The fewer of those contacts we have, the more efficient electric companies can be in restoring power for those places where the, the tree contacts did happen. So it's a big part of, of the equation for sure. And I know a real hallmark of the industry is our mutual assistance program. And for those who see the convoys of bucket trucks on highways heading to the storm during major hurricanes or even major winter storms, you often see neighboring companies coming in to help. That also is something I think that, uh, or that, that I know that our member companies are practicing. I think your team helps convene exercises for those sort of events. I think we have one coming up in a couple of weeks here in May, but maybe talk a little bit about like, I, I know we do tabletop exercises and functional, and I think we do those for, for cyber and a host of other issues, but how does industry actually kind of simulate and try to break processes to get better uh, going into these sort of busier seasons? Yeah, look, exercising is so, so important, right? It's the ability to, and you said it really well, break the system. If you are doing an exercise and you walk out of it like, oh, we did great, everything's fine, um, you've not pushed yourself. It's the same thing with you know, traditional exercise. You, you want to be really you know, sore afterward because you've pushed your body to do something that it isn't used to doing. Uh, and we want to push our uh, response capabilities to something that we're not necessarily used to doing. As we talked about before, every storm, every incident is an opportunity to learn and get better. And I would much rather learn and get better without having to withstand uh, you know, some catastrophic event. So uh, we do convene a number of exercises, individual companies exercise all the time, regions exercise between and among themselves. Uh, and then we, uh, with the Edison Electric Institute, try to, uh, uh, not try, we come together at a national level uh, and make sure that all of those processes are working across the entire uh, North American energy grid, uh, and most importantly, with our government partners. And, and one last word just about mutual assistance. You know, it's something that growing up, I, I witnessed, you, you, you saw convoys of uh, bucket trucks and energy companies from all over North America descending on an affected area. Uh, that was always, you know, exciting to see. I didn't fully appreciate what it takes to bring thousands of crews from all over uh, together to work on one power system during a incident when when power lines are on the ground when debris is everywhere when hotels are booked up because people have been evacuating so many of these companies and so many of these crews who truly are heroes are coming in to restore power in some of the worst conditions and do it really really quickly and really really safely and again that is not something that happens by accident that is something that happens because of years of experience and because of all the exercising that is done uh, to really kind of uh, hone that skill, uh, you know, uh, push those muscles uh, and get us better when, when things do happen.
And that might be a good lead into maybe a process question about what people can expect. I know more people working from home and, and glued to our devices for a number of reasons, but when a storm clears, safety is always the top priority. So I know there sometimes the priority is working with state officials to get the roads clear because there's debris down. There might be roads that are blocked by trees. There might be flooding that's impeding access. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about how that impacts the restoration as well as just why assessments, damage assessments are so important and maybe some of the cooler new tools we're using to, to really make sure that we're able to effectively put all these crews to work, but again, make sure that they're safe while they're out doing it. Yeah, so to really simplify uh, disaster response and mutual assistance processes specifically, we'll just talk about it in terms of three major categories. The first is you have to access the affected area and, and you alluded to it. Sometimes there is debris in the way, there are road closures, there are uh, evacuees who are going one direction while the convoys are going the other direction. So making sure we can get into the affected area so that part two, we can assess the damage and understand exactly what happened to the infrastructure uh, so that then we can develop work packets for people who don't know the system, who are coming from all over North America to help uh, the impacted company, but may not be familiar with the terrain, the territory, the electric company's processes, their, their infrastructure. Um, but it's, it's access the affected area, assess the damage, and then begin the process of restoration. Now, a lot of that happens in parallel. We're not you know, doing these gating items and we don't you know, wait for all of the area to be accessed. And then we do all of the assessments and then we do the restoration. What we're trying to do is to prioritize restoration for uh, high priority customers. Those are going to be first responders. Those are gonna be hospitals. Those are gonna be major uh, thoroughfares uh, where maybe we have gas stations and uh, 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 supermarkets trying to get life back to normal as quickly as possible. So uh, those priority uh, restorations are happening. The second priority is gonna be, what is the biggest number of customers we can get up as quickly as possible? Uh, so that you know, if there's one place where we get 50 customers up, but there's another circuit that if we, you know, if we fix it, we get 5,000 customers up. The priority is going to be those 5,000 customers to get life back to normal as quickly as possible so that we can kind of sustain and support life in the affected area while the rest of the restoration happens. You asked about, you know, you asked about some of the cool toys uh, and, and uh, capabilities that are out there now. One of the really interesting things that we got from our federal partners in recent years uh, has been the ability to... Um, identify so that assessment uh, portion of, of the restoration. Um, we are using uh, satellite imagery from, uh, from government satellites now. Uh, we are using uh, drones and unmanned aerial systems. Uh, so even before you can get humans into the affected area because maybe the roads are closed, we're able to fly the lines, we're able to see the impact and we're able to better target the resources, the people who are going in to do the, to do the restoration, uh, we're uh, able to more efficiently target them at the most affected areas, which is driving down the time of restoration dramatically. And maybe one point as well, we have a very highly skilled workforce that we're very proud of. And there's a lot of interoperability, but you do have a lot of specializations as well. So as you're completing assessments, companies are trying to figure out if they need more vegetation crews because there was a lot of trees down, a transmission person. I mean, those are people who sometimes you see suspended from the big transmission towers or occasionally even brought in by helicopters. I mean, that skill set's going to be a little different, I think, than the people who are setting poles and wires along the side of your neighborhood street. 
That's exactly right. And even going beyond that, so right, you have uh, the T and the D. So you have transmission workers, line crews. You have distribution level line crews. Uh, you've got the vegetation crews. But everybody in an electric company, when they are impacted by a storm or any other natural hazard, uh, they everybody has a storm job. So sometimes it's logistics. Sometimes it's feeding the crews that are coming in. Sometimes it's helping with the laydown yards, the inventory, the uh, uh, the safety briefings. Everybody is doing something uh, to support the process of uh, taking thousands of people from all over the country uh, who may not know the system and getting them out into the field to do the work as efficiently and safely as possible. It's, it's really, it's something to see. And a piece of the process too is making sure that industry and government efforts are aligned, right? So you work with the electricity subsector coordinating council as part of the secretariat, which means he's one of the day-to-day -day executives that helps work with the CEOs who are doing a lot of the work directly interfacing with the government partners. But really it's these sort of groups and centers of gravity that get to convene and make sure all the powers that we have can be brought to bear in response, right? Yeah, I, I think a good way to talk about it is, look, um, every incident, you want to give authority and responsibility to the smallest group possible. Let them go and do the business of restoring power. Uh, we don't want to micromanage that from Washington, D.C. You know, the joke is, I don't have a 2,000 mile long screwdriver. So what I am doing and what the CEOs who, are, uh, who make up the uh, ESCC uh, and our government partners are doing are enabling, facilitating, uh, helping to knock down barriers. So if it's pass through states, we're getting crews from, we'll pick Illinois going to Louisiana. How do we make sure that those crews, those convoys, those trucks can get down to the Gulf Coast as efficiently as possible? If we need some of that satellite imagery, how do we ask the Department of Energy as explicitly as possible for the specific imagery that we are looking for? Uh, if we need a temporary flight restriction so that we can get our uh, unmanned aerial systems in the air and not have other aircraft uh, you know, potentially in danger, uh, how do we enable that? And so that's the, the value of the ESCC during incidents. It is to step back if the uh, process is going as well as can be expected. Uh, and then it is to provide that top cover and that facilitation and that, that barrier breaking uh, if there is something that the crews on the ground need to restore power more effectively. Now, when you were talking earlier about some of the programming at the TDM NMA conference, you had mentioned supply chains. Are supply chain issues that are things that are being discussed at the staff level or those all the way up at the ESCC CO level or really just everywhere in between? So short answer is yes. Uh, I think, look, when you talk about supply chain, it's important it's, and it's easy to just talk about it in terms of supply and demand, right? So supplies are tight right now for a variety of reasons. We're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, we are seeing what's happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, there are uh, there are raw material issues. There are uh, manufacturing shortfalls. There are distribution and, and transportation issues. Uh, there are port slowdowns. I mean, we're seeing this. You know, everybody who tried to buy uh, you know Christmas gifts last year uh, certainly uh, you know understands that uh, the supply chains are tight. Couple that with demand. Uh, the, the, the energy uh, uh, companies all across North America are decarbonizing. We're trying to electrify everything. You have the uh, Infrastructure uh, Investment and Jobs Act, IIJA, which is creating a whole bunch of, uh, of expenditures, all really good things to improve resilience, to improve and, and accelerate decarbonization. But all of those are creating a huge demand for this limited supply. 
And so as we go into storm season, I, I, I'm not an alarmist, we just wanna make sure at all levels, as you were saying, from the CEOs all the way down to the operators, uh, that we feel comfortable that if we have another year like 2020, 2021, 2017, these are some of the really bad years recently, uh, that we have enough material and equipment to put the system back together in real time um, and that we have enough storm stock and enough of that material uh, to be able to uh, restore the system uh, after an event happens. And it sounds like part of that too would be just working across the company and even with regulators on just prioritizing the projects. And You got it, right? Are, are we going to do all of these blue sky projects, right? These nice to haves when there's must haves. Are we going to share equipment from a company that's very unlikely to be impacted by a natural disaster with those that are maybe going to be in the barrel and, and having a, a few more storms this year? And, and what's really extraordinary about this industry is the answer is yes. The answer is uh, companies work really well together uh, because the energy grid of North America is one big machine and it's operated by thousands of, of different companies uh, of varying sizes and, and varying uh, business models uh, from all across uh, the continent. And so there is a willingness to work together to share material and equipment because a company who is impacted today may be the one who is providing resources tomorrow. And the one who is unimpacted today knows that it might be their turn uh, in the crosshairs next. And so uh, there is this really kind of symbiotic relationship where companies are willing to, to support each other. And I think we saw this really interestingly in the Midwest a few years ago, out of nowhere, there was that derecho that hit Iowa and some neighboring states. And I mean, that effectively means they got hit with the hurricane. So they, they usually don't see the type of transmission damage that maybe Florida and Louisiana are kind of regularly experienced been when they needed to source some materials to help rebuild. I mean, it was the companies in Florida and Louisiana and others that were making sure they got what they needed to help their customers. Cause oftentimes they're the cavalry going down to help. And in this case, it was a perfect way to give back a little bit. Yeah. And right. The, the companies that usually the ones impacted were not impacted by that derecho. And so they were more than willing and, and happy to, to support uh, companies all across. It was, uh, as I recall, it was Illinois, Iowa, a little bit of Indiana, a little bit of Missouri. Um, and uh, uh, you know, some of those systems, yeah, there's this there's this notion of restoration. Sometimes it's a full rebuild. Sometimes the system is just absolutely flattened uh, and you're literally rebuilding uh, uh, an entire segment of infrastructure. Uh, and that's what happened following the derecho. Uh, I will also say that's one of those um, uh, examples of a incident that we learned from uh, that had helped to uh, sort of be a catalyst for more uh, material sharing uh, for improving processes for understanding, okay, you use this in your warehouse and you've got this description for your uh, device or this widget, whatever it is, uh, and we call it this. And how do we kind of, uh, how do we make sure that we're speaking the same language? And when I ask for widget A, uh, you understand what it is I'm asking for. And again, make it uh, more efficient to, to share. So all of these are experiences to learn by. And uh, yeah, what you said about the derecho is exactly right. It was effectively a hurricane in the middle of the country. Uh, and uh, the, the companies that were impacted by it did extraordinary work to, to rebuild their systems uh, in a very short amount of time. We know over the past decade that America's investor-owned electric companies had invested more than a trillion dollars in the energy grid to make it stronger, smarter, more resilient to some of these things. But Mother Nature is going to do what Mother Nature is going to do and making sure you're, you're nimble and able to respond. I think um, the latest data we have is a third of some of that recent capital expenditure, we call it CapEx spend, was actually focused just on adaptation, hardening, and resilience, which really is 
making sure the most critical hard to replace assets in the system are in good shape. But you can never prevent everything from being protected from a hurricane or a tornado, right? Yeah, a couple of things to react to there. I mean, first of all, I, it's interesting. We, I always talk about it in terms of annually, you know, $120, $140 billion. But you're right. When you talk about it in terms of the last decade, more than a trillion dollars. Think about that. This is a really capital intensive industry. And so much of it is going toward, as you said, this notion of adaptation, hardening, dealing with all of these um, existing threats. You know, we've had wildfires and hurricanes and ice storms and, and thunderstorms and what have you for a long time. And we are now looking at physical and cyber threats to critical infrastructure because uh, we are a target for, uh, for people who would wish to do us harm. And, and just as you said, I, I like to tell people all the time, you cannot protect everything from everything all of the time. So while you want to minimize the impact from any one of these storms you all, or any one of these incidents, you also want to be able to respond and recover. That is part of a, uh, a resilient strategy. You invest in hardening, you do all the things that uh, we call left of boom. You prepare, you protect, you detect, you defend. Uh, but you also uh, then look right of boom. What happens if an incident happens? You respond, you recover, uh, you have the ability to share material and equipment, you have the ability to operate degraded, uh, things like that. And so looking holistically at all threats, looking not just to stop bad things from happening, but to minimize the impact when they do happen, continually investing in all of the hardening of the energy grid and also improving operations and maintenance. We talked about vegetation management before. Uh, we can talk about inspections. We can talk about the things to, pro to predict when uh, infrastructure is more likely to fail and then prioritize investments uh, in those areas so that we are being as efficient as possible with the customer's dollars uh, and we are being as prepared as possible uh, for all manner of threats. We talk about or been really have been talking about how industry has been preparing, but as individual citizens, I mean, we do have an obligation and this is the time in which, I mean, when it's not a disaster is a good time to be thinking about having a plan for a disaster. So if we're talking about having an emergency kit, what are some things that people should have or conversations they should have even with their family now before we get into the, the peak of hurricane and, and wildfire season and storm season. And really it could be anything, anytime around the year, you really just want to make sure that you have a plan. Yeah. So it, former FEMA uh, administrator Brock Long uh, taught me a while ago that the, the citizens, people, customers are the first responders. That is you know, they uh, are going to be the ones who have to react before the first responders even get there. And so uh, the first thing I would say is I'm not going to pretend to be a disaster preparedness expert. Uh, I will say go to prepare.gov. It's a really good resource uh, that gives you an idea of the kinds of things that you want to have, you know, water for a certain amount of time, foods for a certain amount of time, medications if you need them for a certain amount of time, flashlight, you know, radio, things like that. You know, a really good checklist of if you're going to be without power, or any essential service for an extended period of time, here is a way that you can prepare yourself. And then the other thing I would say is, it's really important for individuals uh, to take some ownership and responsibility of their own preparedness. Uh, you know, we are preparing as the electric power sector of North America uh, so that we can respond as quickly as possible. But for all the reasons that we've just talked about, whether it is the inability to access an affected area, whether it is just extraordinary devastation, uh, those life-saving uh, measures that you can take ahead of time really can 
make all the difference. And then when we get in there, we can start with the life, you know, the life sustaining uh, and the life supporting work uh, that will uh, get things back to normal as quickly as possible. And it's always good. And if there is a storm or major incident approaching, I'm sure your local electric company is going to be pushing out these safety messages. But I mean, electricity is dangerous. And if you see down wires, stay away from them. If there are floodwaters, turn around because it doesn't take a whole lot of water to really submerge a car and create a dangerous situation there. So really take the safety messages to heart. If you see crews who are out working during a restoration, they're focused on keeping themselves and their coworkers safe and make sure you keep a safe distance from them. I know we want to thank them. I know we're interested in when we're going to get our power back, but companies these days do a really good job of providing those updates on their social media channels. And those are usually the safest way to get information really. Well, when crews are out there, they're working long hours, they're doing dangerous work, and they, they really need to keep their attention on the job at hand. Amen to that. Yeah, if, if you haven't already uh, during uh, you know, the off season, you should subscribe to the social media channels uh, that your uh, energy company has out there. Uh, you should uh, you know, opt in to receive as many uh, text messages as they're willing to, as you're willing to receive. Uh, but electric companies really are doing an extraordinary job of communicating. And I think that's a big deal. I think you know, again, we can't prevent every outage and we can't give precise timing uh, early on in uh, a response until we've had the chance to get in there and assess the damage. Uh, but at least understanding what it is you're in for, how long you can expect to be without power uh, and the things that you then need to do to take care of yourself and your family, I think really does go a long way. And then I can't foot stomp enough, which you said, Brian, which is uh, be safe. If you see down wires, don't go anywhere near them. You do not know if they're energized. And if you see crews in the field, let them do their work. They're, they're, they're doing important and dangerous work. Uh, and uh, you can, uh, you know, you can watch from a distance, but, but, but don't get too close because uh, you just don't know uh, what, uh, what is on the ground. And so I want everybody to be safe. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Scott. I mean, we all are hoping for a quiet hurricane and wildfire season, but sounds like your team and our, and our member companies have done the work they need to make sure they're ready for it. That, that's exactly right. Uh, we'll, we'll hope for an, uh, an uneventful year, uh, your lips to God's ears. But uh, in, in the case that uh, we do have an eventful year, we're ready for that too. Thanks so much. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.